Welcome to HealthCom Central, where we unpack theories and frameworks that can help you create more effective communication to improve both health outcomes and health equity. I'm your host, Karen Hilliard, behavioral scientist and longtime communication practitioner. If you're looking for fresh approaches that get real results, you are in the right place. So let's get started. Hello, HealthCom nerds and HealthCom novices. Welcome to this episode of HealthCom Central. We're going to talk today about a frustrating problem that public health has been struggling with for quite a while, but it's gotten much, much worse during the COVID pandemic. And that problem is anti-science bias. I was reading an article recently in the Washington Post that was talking about the phrase follow the science, which has become almost an insult over the past two years. And of course, sometimes it has gotten even more personal. There was a recent survey by NACHO, the National Association of County and City Health Officials, that found that more than half of all local public health departments had been the targets of harassment during the pandemic. It is frightening. And the same nature survey showed that this harassment has actually caused some public health practitioners to quit their jobs. So if you've been subject to that kind of abuse, I am so, so sorry. Of course, in some cases, that kind of harassment may call for a response by law enforcement. But today we're not going to be talking about how to respond to the extremists out there, but instead how to respond to the more common, everyday anti-science bias that leads people to dismiss or even flout public health guidance. And we're going to talk about one communication-based strategy that is working to bridge gaps and increase understanding, not in public health, but in the very polarized world of politics, and that could actually be applied to many of the interactions that we've been having recently in what is becoming a more and more polarized area for public health and in healthcare. Before we get into that and into the communication strategy, I wanna talk about three things. First, some historical perspective on anti-science bias. Two, understanding the playbook of science denier propagandists so we know who we are battling against. And then third, the reasons why anti-science beliefs may not be quite as irrational as you think. And yes, you heard that right, but hold on, we'll get to why I'm defending that in just a minute. But let's talk first about the history of anti-science sentiment and anti-science activism. So, you know, it can feel like this is a very new phenomenon, and indeed, the lack of trust specifically in some public health brands like CDC is something new. It was just a few years ago that CDC had one of the most trusted brands in the world. So trusted, in fact, that in research, many respondents who had anti-government beliefs on other topics trusted CDC so much that they didn't even think it was a government agency. It was kind of a joke among researchers, like they don't even think we're part of the government, they trust us so much. So yeah, that has changed. And we will be talking about the fragility of 
trust and how to rebuild trust in a future episode. But today we're going to focus on anti-science bias specifically. And, you know, quite a bit of the anti-science rhetoric that is out there in the last couple of years may seem ideologically motivated, but it's worth remembering that anti-science views are not exclusive to the left or the right. Anti-science views can be found all around, and you don't have to look any further than the anti-vaccine movement to see how people of many otherwise opposing political stripes, okay, look at like Robert Kennedy Jr. and Rand Paul, for example, may be caught up in an anti-science movement. So the other thing that's important to remember is that While the ability to spread pseudoscience and anti-science is much easier since the advent of social media, and that's another thing that makes it seem like a new problem, but actually anti-science activism has been with us for as long as science has been with us. In fact, almost every advance in science, medicine, technology over the course of human history has been met with some type of opposition. Even in the face of that, though, and this is a thing I want you to hold on to, even in the face of that, science has prevailed. Public health victories have still been achieved. You know, think about the widespread public sanitation in much of the world. Goodbye, frequent outbreaks of cholera. Or think about the eradication of smallpox and the dramatic reduction in preventable childhood disease because of vaccination. So my point here is This is a familiar cycle that public health can and will overcome. And even the people who doubt some science don't doubt all of it. That's the other other thing that can give you hope here. Think about all the people a couple of years ago who donned special glasses to view that big solar eclipse in North America. They did not doubt the scientists who said it would happen. They didn't doubt the scientists and the doctors who said, hey, protect your eyes when you view it. The fact is, people pick and choose quite a bit about what the science is that they will follow and what science they're going to ignore. And it's complicated. We're going to get to just how complicated it is in just a moment. But the second point I want to make today is we're up against a lot. Anti-science propagandists who drive anti-science rhetoric are pretty sophisticated, actually. They have a variety of motivations. You know, they're not all, they're not all the same. Some of them may be zealots, others may be con artists. You know, maybe instead of saying follow the science, we should really be saying follow the money when we're looking to see where these messages are coming from. So No matter who they are, though, these anti-science propagandists have either built their identity or their livelihood or both on peddling conspiracy theories, peddling pseudoscience, peddling grievances, and all of them follow the same playbook. It is a playbook that is just as old as science itself. And there's a great article, which I've linked to in the show notes, 
by a scholar named Seth Carroll. He's written about their tactics, and he had a 2020 article in Scientific American called The Denialist Playbook, where he talks about the six arguments that anti-science forces always use and that they have always been using at least for the last 70 years. So what are those arguments, these six arguments that they use? Well, first, they cast doubt on the science. That's simple enough. Second, if that doesn't work, they question the motives and integrity of the scientists. Sound familiar? Third, they will magnify disagreements among scientists and then cite these gadflies as authorities, people who really don't know what they're talking about. Fourth, they exaggerate the potential harm. Fifth, they appeal to personal freedom. Doesn't matter what the issue is, personal freedom always seems to be a winning argument for them. And sixth, if all else fails, they reject the science on other grounds, that it's in conflict with some other philosophy, such as religion, or even just in conflict with common sense. What gets really tricky here is that when they're challenged on one front, they will change tactics, which is one of the things that makes it so hard for us. It's like playing a game of whack-a-mole. And you can see this same pattern throughout anti-science rhetoric, whether it's about public health or climate change or evolution. The thing about it is, though, that this playbook is totally predictable. And if we can recognize it, understand it, and anticipate these plays, we will find that there are ways to get out in front of some of these tactics to sort of outflank them. And that's something we're going to be talking about in a future episode we're gonna, we've got plenty of tools today to talk about, but we will cover this in more detail multiple times because there are some great strategies that we can use that are anticipatory when we know that the other side is going to use a particular argument. So we'll get to that later. But in the meantime, knowing what's coming can help us to better prepare for the onslaught. So, you know, mentally, it's good for us to know and expect this playbook to be used. But I will also say their tactics can be very effective. And one of the issues is that many of your audiences are already primed to question or even fear science. So when these tactics are used on them, they are extremely effective. So let's talk about those audiences for a minute. And this is my third point today. If you Take nothing else away from this episode. You need to realize one important thing, which I alluded to earlier. People who doubt the science and the science-based recommendations that we're communicating, and people who may parrot conspiracy theories that seem absurd to us, are not necessarily dumb or crazy at all. Now, I am not defending hostility towards science. I'm not saying that people are right. What I am saying here is that I want you to look at anti-science views of everyday people with greater understanding and empathy. And this is a research-based statement. It's not just because I think this is a good idea. It's because research says that greater understanding and empathy are the best ways to change those anti-science views, or at least to make them less extreme. Now, one of the things that is important to recognize is that opposition to science is often the result of fear. 
It might be fear of individuals being hurt or exploited or rights being trampled, fear of pollution or contamination or corruption, fear of science replacing humans or putting an end to case-by-case decisions, fear of powerful groups conspiring against less powerful groups or individuals, fear of loss of control. And, you know, these are not irrational fears. In many cases, they are fears grounded in the times that science did exploit people or trample on their rights. Think about Tuskegee. Or maybe these are fears grounded in the times that science did pollute or contaminate. Think about things like birth defects from thalidomide. Or when powerful groups did conspire against others to hide information, often in pursuit of profit, like maybe big tobacco. These are exceptional cases in a world where health agencies have now put many safeguards in place And the vast majority of scientists and medical professionals are conscientious and caring and are in their chosen careers to save lives and protect health. But because these real-life tragedies are so egregious, and because they are true, they happened in real life, even though they're exceptions, they're much more salient to people, much more easily recalled than all of the everyday scientific and public health victories that are not so top of mind. That's an example of the availability bias that is a key concept in behavioral economics and the representativeness heuristic, another behavioral economics concept, which is basically a shortcut that humans use to determine how likely a certain event is to happen or how likely it is to happen to them. And together, these common biases, which all of us have, they are human biases, can lead people to conclude that these very memorable events, these very terrible events, could happen again to them. So you can see how easy it might be then to be susceptible to a conspiracy theory that alleges something similar is happening again. Because typically, conspiracy theories do have a tiny kernel of something that is true or that has actually happened. They have something familiar in them that is frightening to people. And that is what makes them powerful. So what do we do about it? Well, here's the thing that you don't do. We do not keep throwing facts at people because fear is an emotion. Emotions are very different than logical thoughts. And a parade of data is not what it takes to change hearts and minds. And Because yet another very human tendency known as the confirmation bias can lead people to selectively seek out facts that reinforce their beliefs. An avalanche of facts that support our side may just cause people to tune out. Of course, now you still need data-focused messages for the majority of audiences. But for skeptics, more data is not the answer. Nor, of course, is ridiculing or stigmatizing people who believe in a different set of, quote, facts. You can't see my air quotes, but I'm making them. That can have a backfire effect if we ridicule or stigmatize people that further entrenches them in their beliefs. So for the anti-science or skeptical minority, what you can do instead is begin by hearing and empathizing with their emotions 
You don't have to agree with their arguments. You just have to hear their emotions. Listen, be curious, and consider the non-science factors that shape people's beliefs, including sometimes spiritual beliefs, superstitions, tradition, and lived experience. Tell your own stories and seek common ground around shared values. These are research-based tactics that we use with hostile audiences anytime, seeking common ground and shared values. But there's something that can be particularly effective here. Now, I also want to talk today about a strategy that's being used and studied right now in political circles that provides a framework for just this kind of approach, and it's helping in the political sphere to create greater understanding between highly polarized groups. And it's exactly the kind of strategy we could be using in public health and in healthcare in polarized situations. It's called the change conversation cycle. Well, let me repeat that, the change conversation cycle. And I've got some links in the show notes. And it was developed by a scholar named Karen Tamarius. Now, the change conversation cycle is a five-step model. Let me talk about the five steps. Very simple. Step one, ask to better understand. Step two, listen. Step three, reflect what they have said. Step four, find something, anything to agree on. And step five, share our own experience or opinion. So again, ask, listen, reflect, agree, and share. So instead of talking, instead of explaining, arguing, stating more facts, the first four steps, the first four, ask, listen, reflect, agree, require us to hear the other side and find something on which we can agree. And it's only in the final step that we share our own views. Now that's very counterintuitive for many of us, and especially in public health, where so often we just throw more and more facts out to persuade someone instead of trying to actually understand what they're saying. The change conversation cycle aligns with a lot of the research that we have on hostile audiences, including what I mentioned before about finding common ground, and also some other research-based information that we have that that when we affirm people's self-worth, they are more likely to let go of misperceptions. So imagine if more of our discourse was like this in public health. I mean, imagine if healthcare providers responded in this way instead of dismissing patient concerns or immediately throwing cold water on alternative remedies or beliefs, instead of listening with empathy and looking for places of agreement. And it's interesting, this meshes very well with some of the research that I've done on health disparities and alternative medicine in the African-American community and how prevalent the use of alternative and complementary therapies is for a group that was traditionally excluded and discriminated against when it came to mainstream healthcare. When when a doctor then dismisses something that has literally kept people alive for generations in the face of discrimination, when they don't listen to it, 
ask about it, and then perhaps if it's not a harmful thing, apply a yes and strategy to it. When they dismiss those traditions, those views, they alienate groups further. So let me give you one example here. When I was doing research a few years back with a team of collaborators, we had an NIH study that we were doing about flu vaccination in the African-American community. And we were looking specifically for cultural influences on vaccination behavior. And one of the things we heard about in many, many interviews and focus groups that we had no idea about when we went into this was this home remedy that involved putting raw onions near your feet in bed at night to protect against the flu. Now, that may not be an evidence-based strategy, although I will say we don't know because probably nobody has studied it, but it came up again and again. It was clearly a prevalent home remedy. Imagine a doctor scoffing at that, which is very likely to happen. But imagine now a doctor using the change conversation cycle to bridge from the story of the raw onions to convincing someone that flu vaccination is a good idea for them. So they could ask, what are you doing now to protect yourself against the flu? Are there any home remedies that you've found that have been helpful or maybe that are practiced in your family by your mother, your grandmother, your aunts, and then listening, the second part of the cycle, listening for what is said, right? Listening to that and not throwing facts out, not dismissing it, but reflecting, saying something like, wow, sounds like your grandmother was an amazing woman who was really taking care of you. So reflecting the emotion that you are hearing, the pride that you are hearing, maybe even reflecting some of the struggle that you're hearing, saying something like that was probably one of the only things that she could do in a time when it wasn't always possible to have access to a doctor. Okay, so you've reflected the emotions. Then finally agreeing, saying something like, you know, I don't think that that will hurt. We don't know, it might even help you should go ahead and keep putting those onions by your feet. You've agreed, right? But then finally, you're going to share. But let me tell you one thing. My grandmother and your grandmother, they didn't have flu vaccines. And if they had had them, they would have wanted us to get that too. Flu vaccination is one of the most effective things that you can do to protect yourself against the flu And you don't have to stop doing any of the other stuff. You're just going to add this on. It's a way to protect you. I make sure every year that I get a flu vaccine, that my mom, my dad, my aunt, my uncle, my kids, that they get flu vaccines. And I really, it would mean so much to me if you did too. So you're sharing at the end. You're sharing that thing about the effectiveness. And you're coming back. You're circling back to the emotion. Imagine if that's how healthcare practitioners responded to anti-science skepticism. Now, this changed conversation cycle is very easy to grasp on an intellectual level, but it is fairly counterintuitive for many of us who focus on facts and not feelings. So it really does take patience and repetition and practice to become adept at it. 
The other thing to know is that the change conversation cycle, as fantastic as it is and as aligned with research as it is, it may not convert the most hostile audiences. Okay, so it may not work on everybody, but it is a much better approach than ignoring skeptics or inundating them with data. And it can work very well with another framework that we'll cover in a future podcast, also taken from politics, actually taken from the civil rights movement called the Spectrum of Allies, which is all about how to convert people from hostility to neutrality or from neutrality into allyship. But that's another podcast. Okay, so one more thing about the change conversation cycle. If you're like me and you need a mnemonic to help you remember the steps of the cycle, ask, listen, reflect, agree, share. It's A-L-R-A-S, ALRAS, okay? So you can remember it that way. That is it for today. I hope you will check out the change conversation cycle. I hope you will try it out in some of your interventions and campaigns and any place that you can squeeze it in because it is fantastic and it really does work to begin building a bridge of empathy and understanding that can change hearts and minds and importantly, change health behaviors. You may have other strategies that you are using to deal with science skeptics, and I am always adding to my toolkit. So if you've got something good, I hope you will reach out and let me know. You might even hear about it in a future podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. And please keep telling your friends and colleagues about HealthCom Central. Remember to subscribe to HealthCom Central wherever you get your podcasts. And you can tune in for another episode next week. Till then, be well, stay safe, and stay science-based. See you soon. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment now to leave a rating and review. Be sure to subscribe to HealthCom Central on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have friends and colleagues who should be part of our community, please share the link.